to following Jesus. Jesus isn't just an add-on. He's not just like a supplement. He's not just something that like can maybe make, improve my life a little bit and make me have better, you know, friendships and relationships and bless my life and give me more money. Like for a lot of these people, like saying yes to Jesus is an expectation that I'm, I'm about to lose everything or I, I'm going to risk losing everything because, uh, because of Jesus. And so I, I just believe that there should be within us this great belief that following Jesus is going to cost us. Now, it might not cost you your life. You know, living in the West, we're pretty much insulated from that reality, at least right now. It's probably not going to cost you your life, but there should still be a belief in us that following Jesus will cost us something. Hey, we are in week five of a teaching series uh, called What Now? This is our final installment of this series. It's uh, coming to an end. This has been our After Easter series, really built on this idea of uh, after all that Jesus has done, what now? After all that Jesus has done, what now? That had to be the question on the minds of those early followers of Jesus who are standing there on the Mount of Olives on the day of ascension, the day that Jesus ascends you know, into heaven, vanishes into thin air. That had to be the question that they were left with in their mind after he has gone is, what now? Like, what comes next? What do we do with all that we have seen and heard? How do we live our lives now in response to the gospel of Jesus, in response to everything that Jesus has done? And what we see in the book of Acts, which this series has really been built around, is really a lot of the answers to those kinds of questions of what came next and you know, what those followers of Jesus began to do with what they had seen and heard in the life of Jesus. But uh, what I want to make sure we're doing in this series is that we're making sure uh, to not just ask and answer the question about the early followers of Jesus and how they lived in response to all that, but I think we got to ask this question of ourselves as well. Like, what now for me? What now after all that Jesus has done? What now, what now for me? How do I live my life in response to the gospel story? How do I live my life now in response to, you know, that Easter story that we celebrated not that long ago? And like I said, the, the book of Acts really starts to answer this question for the early followers. And why I think we want to ask these questions parallel in terms of our life and their life is because I think that there are some things that we see in these early followers of Jesus that we would be wise to, to sort of pull out and apply to our lives as we're trying to answer that question, what now for us? How do we live this thing out? How do we live our lives in response to the gospel, in response to that, that incredible sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross all those years ago. And so what we've learned in this series so far is that in the book of Acts, the church really began as a movement 2,000 years ago of 120 people who really spill out into the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost with, with a very simple and yet very unique message that Jesus was the risen Christ, the son of the living God, right? And, and I think sometimes what you and I people fail, fail to see is that when the church launched, it did not launch around the teachings of Jesus. When the church first launched, it did not even launch around the activities of Jesus. And I don't want to take anything away from those things because they're, they're, they're wildly important. I don't want to minimize their significance. I'm just telling you that that's not what the church launched around. When the church launched 2,000 years ago, it launched around two key events, the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And so these early followers of Jesus, right, that we're, that we're talking about, 
they, they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Like they had, they had firsthand experience witnessing a resurrected Lord. They'd interacted with him. They'd seen him walking with them. So they, they, they are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And two, they have been filled with power and with boldness from the Holy Spirit, okay? And so as a result, on opening day, 3,000 people join and get baptized, right? Two weeks later, we read about you know, the church is now up to 5,000 men who have put their faith in Jesus. It doesn't count women and children, so it's probably 12 to 15,000. And so this movement, this, this fledgling movement, you know, getting off the ground, it's just picking up steam in the first five chapters of Acts, and it's not slowing down anytime soon, right? And, and what's amazing to me about all of that is that this has nothing to do with buildings and hierarchy, Right? It, has, it has nothing to do with cathedrals and steeples and stained glass, nothing to do with hymnals and robes and all of that stuff that sort of you know, w- you know, comes into our mind when we think about church. Like simply stated, the church began as a gathering of people who came together around a very simple belief that Jesus really was who he said he was, that Jesus really was the risen Christ, that he really was the Messiah, and that he really was the son of the living God. And the first five books The first five chapters of the book of Acts are where we really begin to see the church built and established. The church being built and being established, really fulfilling the words of Jesus, the famous words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. Look at this with me, where he famously says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it or the gates of hell will not overcome it. You want to know what this verse means? You know what this verse is really talking about here? You know, you know what it means? It means, that, it means that Jesus will have a church in the world. That, that's what it's telling us. Jesus will have a church in the world. And that, and that his church will be attacked. That hell will try to overcome it, but that none of these attacks will be able to destroy it. It's telling us that his church will endure. Okay? And so, so when, when we, we see these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 really play themselves out in the book of Acts particularly here in, in, in chapters 1 through 5, we, we, we see, you know, the church being established in the earth through the apostles. We read about incredible stories of, of Jesus building his church through these early followers of his. We see incredible momentum, ex, exponential growth. You know, there's unity of focus. There's a priority on the kingdom of God. You know, uh, miracles, signs, and wonders are following everything they're doing. But when you get to the, the next few chapters, when you get to chapters 6 and 7 and some of 8, what you start to see, we start to read, is, is some of the, the, the first attacks really come upon this upstart church. This is where we really begin to read about like some intense persecution coming upon this church. And it's just, it's just really important in terms of Matthew 16 that we understand that Jesus makes it clear he's going to have a church Really, whether we like it or not, he's going to have a church. His church is going, to, is going to go through some stuff. It's going to face some attacks. Hell's going to try to overcome it, but that it will endure. None of those attacks will, uh, will last. And so when we think about the question of this series, that this whole series is built around what now, and we think about those early followers of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, watching Jesus ascend and vanish into thin air. What, man, imagine what that would have been like. And they're standing there going like, well, what do we do now? Like, what comes next? I think, I mean, they had, they had no way to, to, to probably really understand in that moment some of what would come next. That this gospel message that they're preparing to share with people 
uh, isn't going to be received by everybody, and it's going to make some people pretty angry. And so in terms of that question, like what now? Well, for these early followers of Jesus, there's some pretty amazing things that are about to come. Like they're about to do some amazing things for Jesus. They're about to see God do like miraculous signs and wonders. But, but also in terms of what now, I mean, they're about to be persecuted, really. And they, and they really didn't fully know that or have, have, have the ability to fully comprehend what that was going to be like. If you're taking notes with me this morning, I want you to look at this thought. Don't you think that anyone who is willing to endure persecution for something has to really believe they have experienced something that is undeniable? Don't you think like that's, that's true? I mean, right? Because like if, if they could deny it, they would. You know, like, no, no one's just sitting there going, yeah, like, I'd love to just, like, suffer for something. You know, like, like if they could deny it, they would. Like, like, they have to have experienced something that in their mind is completely undeniable. If they could recant, they would. I don't know anybody, I've never heard of anybody willing to suffer and potentially even die for something that they just sort of believe in. Right? I mean, I, like, I, I certainly wouldn't do that. I'd be like, yeah, I'm out. Nope. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, but, like, we read about this church in the early days. We read about really the first several hundred years of the church. And really all throughout church history, people continue to face persecution and give their lives for the cause of Jesus. And I'm just sitting here going, man, anyone willing to endure persecution for something has to really believe they've experienced something that's undeniable. That when they're told to deny it, they just can't. You know? And, and that's, that's really like a marker of the church in, in, in the beginning. And, and it's, been, it's been like a, a, a marker of the church ever since. I don't know of anybody willing to endure suffering or persecution for something, to give up their life for something that they just sort of kind of believe in, right? It reminds me of, um, of a scene from the, the classic movie, The Princess Bride. I don't know if anybody's familiar with it. Yeah, great cult classic movie, okay? We're going to soften it up for a second. Uh, right? I, it reminds me of this scene in the movie, and if you're familiar with the movie, then you know that like, the, the, the key uh, principal character in the movie is, is a guy named Wesley. And uh, in this particular scene that I was remembering, Wesley has died, and his friends, uh, Fezzik and Inigo Montoya, remember, right? I'm getting it. Uh, they decide they're going to they're, they're, they're bring him to Miracle Max, because they need a miracle. And so they bring him to Miracle Max for a miracle, and to their amazement, they find out that Wesley is not dead, he's just mostly dead. Okay, the classic line, he's just mostly dead. And anyway, they end up getting this miracle from Miracle Max. Like, it ends up, it ends up working like he comes back to life, but it's like a slow-acting miracle, you know, where he only has control over his mouth. He can speak, but, like, he can't move any part of his body. It's, it's hilarious. And so uh, they've got to go storm the castle. They've got to go save Princess Buttercup, right? So they, uh, the problem is that Wesley can't walk. He has no strength in his body, and so he has to be carried by Fezzik and Inigo Montoya to, to the gates of the castle, okay? They get to the castle gates, and there is this guard standing right there, and, uh, and he, he's all by himself, and he is under strict orders to not open the gates under, like, any circumstances whatsoever. And so they get to the gates, and, and, and Wesley looks at this guard, and he's being propped up. Like, he can't stand. He's leaning on Inigo Montoya, and he looks at this guard in the face, and he says, give us the gate key. Why don't you watch this quick clip? Give us the gate key. I have no gate key. I see. That is arms off. Oh, you mean this gate key? <laughs> yeah. Classic scene, right? I love that scene. We could have could have gone longer, but uh, Fezzik, or give us the gate key. I have no gate key. Uh, tear his arms off. Like I, I, I don't know. Like like anybody. 
uh, willing to, to endure any kind of suffering for something they just sort of believe in, right? I don't know anybody willing to like give up their life or let their arms be torn off their body for something that's just like, yeah, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not all that into this, right? I'm, you, can have, you can have the gate key. And what's interesting to me about a scene like that or the reality of that is I have seen this so many times as a pastor over the years. I, I have seen people who appear to be all in, people who, who are like appearing to follow Jesus and then at the first sign of trouble or difficulty, uh, things change for them. And you know, I think what you see like in this clip or what you see in people like that, you know, is, is really, you know, some, some of that classic language, like when we talk about things that we love, you know, and, and yet really when push comes to, to shove, people say things like, well, I, I, I don't love it that much. Like I love it, but I don't love it that much, right? Because everybody has limits is another thing people say. Everybody has limits. So, you know, we're, we're all in on something until the circumstances change and, and we have to kind of like, like, like rethink this whole thing. And what I want to really get into today and to talk about uh, as, as we get going is how do we respond to difficulty? How do we respond to difficulty? You and me, like as followers of Jesus, how do we respond to difficulty in our life? And, and is, it, is it possible that, that you and I as followers of Jesus are intended to respond to difficulty differently than, than people who don't know Jesus? Is, 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 it, is it possible? And my experience as a pastor has been, I mean, over the years, I've seen this like so many times, I, I couldn't even, like, like I mean, I'd be here all day just telling you stories of watching people who were following Jesus fall away from their faith, abandon their faith when things in their life got hard. And maybe some of you can relate to that because you know what it's like for things to get difficult. You know what, it, you, you have stories in your life of things that didn't go as expected. And you know, you know what it's like to actually have your faith feel, uh, you know, like fractured. Or you know what it's like to, see, to feel your faith be rocked by, by some difficult circumstances. So I'm not trying to minimize that in any way. All I'm saying is that I, I, I've seen it so many times that, that, that people following Jesus just un, up until things, uh, things get difficult. And I think the reason for this it's because there seems to be at least two different ways that people seem to be embracing the gospel. It's what I've noticed over the years. Like, at least two different ways that people seem to embrace the gospel. Like, on one hand, you have those people who, who believe that Jesus is worth it, and they're willing to pay the price and deal with any persecution in order to be faithful and loyal to him. And they're just saying, like, yeah, whatever you want, whatever you, whatever you want. My life is not my own. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. And you see that on one hand. But then on the other hand, what I've noticed, like, so many times is is those people who seem to believe that Jesus is an add-on who, who's going to upgrade their life and make it better. And the problem is, is that once their, their life doesn't seem to be better, when things are difficult, they drift, they fade, and they eventually dispose of Jesus from their life. Have you noticed this ever? Have you seen this ever? Have you noticed the tendency even in ourselves? And in my experience, it seems like most people fall away because they become offended with God. Uh, like, like they, they go through things they didn't plan on going through, and, and they're going, yeah, but God, I thought you would, and you didn't. If you're so good, how could you allow this? And it seems like, like the vast majority of people that I've, that I've witnessed sort of be all in for a season and then turn their back and fall away from the Lord all comes down to being uh, offended with God, like he didn't meet their expectations, and so now they're out. And so here's the question like, like of the day that we've got to take away, and we've got to ask ourselves, not just here in church, We've got to ask this question of ourselves as we're driving away. We've got to ask this question as we're up in the morning, as we're trying to figure out our life and how to follow Jesus away from here. And it's this question, how do we become rooted in our faith in such a way that we will remain faithful even when things get hard? 
how do you and I become so rooted in our faith that we will remain faithful even when things get difficult? Because I think that this is what we notice for sure in the first opening chapters of the book of Acts, and we're looking at these early followers of Jesus, is we're noticing people deeply rooted in their faith, deeply rooted in their experience with God, with Jesus, that, that even though things get difficult, it's not even an option for them to like deny, to recant, to decide that they're not going to do this any longer. Like They've seen enough that, 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 uh, that they can't possibly change their mind. How do we become so rooted that we remain faithful? Where the resistance we experience only makes us stronger. Where the opposition only makes us lean into Jesus more rather than walk away from him. You know, three years ago, uh, just over three years ago, I was in, uh, I had the opportunity to be in Israel with my brother, uh, who you'll meet next week. And um, I remember a specific part of the trip where, where we were up in the Golan Heights. And if you're f- familiar with that area of Israel or if you, if you follow any of the, the news, you know that that's a, like a hotly contested area. Um, there is, it's a piece of land that multiple countries you know, border, and they all kind of lay claim to that land. And, and so we were up in the Golan Heights in northern Israel, and I remember being up there having like hummus and vegetables. Uh, to eat. It was terrible. And um, I'm like, can a guy get some meat around here? So uh, anyway, we're up, in the, we're up in the Golan Heights, and, and I remember being up there having this like snack uh, that was apparently a meal, and looking, looking, okay, all right. I remember us up there, and we are looking into Syria from, from our vantage point. We're up on this mountain. We're looking into Syria on, on one hand, and on the other side over here, we're looking into Lebanon. And um, in fact, let me just show you a couple pictures here. Like, um, if, if you want to put that first, that first one up, like you can see, that I, I, I took my phone out while we were there, and I just took a screenshot. I opened up maps and took a screenshot, so that blue dot is right where we were. Um, and you can see Damascus over here, which is the capital city of Syria in Lebanon. And then you can show the next one. I zoomed in a little more. And, and this, you know, where I'm at, you see that, that faded pink line? That's the contested border, you know? And so we're right there and, and uh, realizing, you know, for the first time in my life as a Westerner who's never faced any kind of persecution that I'm just a matter of, like, miles away of where I would, I would actually be killed for my faith in Jesus. It is one of the, one of the most eye-opening moments that I've ever, I've ever had. You know, I've never been that close to where following Jesus would actually cost me my life if I just took a few more steps in that direction. And I, I tell you all that. Like, actually, you can see this next picture because actually you can see the, dis, I'm, the picture into Syria from where I'm at. And, and um, I just remember being there, just being amazed, hearing the stories, you know, um, like, like uh, the, um, the, the, the people who had already given their lives for Jesus in these nations, as, especially as ISIS was running uh, just uh, like, like crazy through, through that part of the world. One of the things that I took away from this um, experience is, is I really started to believe, if you're taking notes here today, that persecution is an expectation that comes with following Jesus. It just is. It's just, a, it's just an expectation that I can't get around. Like when I, when I read the Bible, when I read about the church in Acts, when I, when I see what's going on in places around the world, I notice that like persecution for, for these people is like an expectation. It's like they get it. They know that like saying yes to Jesus is going to require this. This is the price tag to following Jesus. Jesus isn't just an add-on. 
He's not just like a supplement. He's not just something that like can may, maybe make, improve my life a little bit and make me have better you know, friendships and relationships and bless my life and give me more money. Like for a lot of these people, like saying yes to Jesus is an expectation that I'm, I'm about to lose everything or I, I'm going to risk losing everything because, uh, because of Jesus. And so I, I just believe that there should be within us this great belief that following Jesus is going to cost us. Now, it might not cost you your life. You know, living in the West, we're pretty much insulated from that reality, at least right now. It's probably not going to cost you your life, but there should still be a belief in us that following Jesus will cost us something. And that this is normal. That this is a normal and expected part of our discipleship. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 15. Jesus says this, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. <laughs> Remember the, world, the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Like these are the words of Jesus making it very clear to those who wish to follow him that, hey, this isn't going to be real popular. Like, like you, 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 may, you know, you and I, we read all about the, the incredible, like, like, stories, like the, uh, my uncle used to call them, like, the God candy stories of the Bible, you know, of, like, incredible miracles, you know, demons being cast out, those who are sick being made whole, right, the dead being raised to life. You read all these amazing stories, and, and we're like, yeah, yeah, I want to be a part of that stuff. Like, I, I, I want to be a part of, like, like the, the, the miracles, the signs and wonders, the, the, the bringing of the kingdom of God here to earth. And a lot of times what we don't understand is that, is that landing the kingdom of God to earth in a lot of ways around the world is being faithful to Jesus in the midst of persecution. In many cases, that's what lands the kingdom of God to earth, is, is, is remaining faithful when other people aren't. Jesus just makes it clear. He says, if, if, if you're going to follow me, the world's going to hate you. And I, and I don't know if, if, you, if you've noticed this even yet in your life. Certainly in, in recent times, we have noticed that the, the value system, the, the Christian value system, uh, is, is becoming a lot less popular, right? It's, it's it, what was once in the center of our society in a, in a very Christianized culture. Is, it, it has changed as we've become post-Christian. And what has been, what was at the center has been moved to the fringe, and maybe you've noticed the tension in your life as you've seen that happen. And so I tell you all that because as we get into Acts chapter 6 and 7, try to land this, this home today, this is where we start to see followers of Jesus facing intense persecution for their faith in Jesus. Particularly a man by the name of Stephen that I want to look at here today. And Stephen is something that, someone that maybe you're familiar with, maybe you aren't, but what you need to know about him is that he was one of the seven deacons handpicked to help distribute food to the, to the widows uh, in, in Acts chapter 6. The Bible says that Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit and that he did incredible miracles. So we know that like, this is a guy who's no joke, right? He's all in on Jesus. His life is, is, is uh, dedicated to Jesus. Like miracles, signs, and wonders are following him everywhere he's going. He's also serving the church in terms of, of distributing food out to those who are in need. Well, he's an incredible man. And this incredible man, eventually, he gets arrested. And I want to I tell you how that, how that goes. Towards the end of Acts chapter 6, Stephen is sort of sparring theologically with some other Jews. 
uh, Jews from Cyrene in Alexandria. They're, they're sparring theologically on, on, on what, uh, you know, who Jesus really was and the things of the, of, of the, old, of the old covenant. And so they're, they're arguing with each other about, about Jesus. Well, Acts chapter 6, verse 10 is a really interesting scripture. It's, it's pretty funny. It says, but they, they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Okay, just stop there for a second. So they're, 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 they're arguing, they're sparring, like who is Jesus? Like these guys are trying to like, should I say, yeah, but what about this to Stephen? And, and, and yet the Bible tells us that they can't stand up to his wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. There's clearly something about him that, uh, that, is, that is absolutely incredible. The Lord is giving him the words to say. And so in verse 11, it says, then they secretly, so they can't, they can't beat him. So it says in verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, which I mentioned last week was like this religious um, court system for like, you know, the Jews. This was, they, it was brought, he was brought up on charges in their religious court. In verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. Okay, so you can imagine the scene. All these false charges, these trumped up charges coming against Stephen. And all of a sudden, everybody like turns and looks at him intently like to see what he's going to say. And when they looked at him, it says they saw his face was like the face of an angel. I don't know what that means, but I know that that's pretty awesome. Right? I don't know what that means, but like there's something about, listen, like there's something about his actual countenance that was a, that was a testimony, right, that, 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 that spoke to people about what was going on in his life. And so then what we see happen, and I didn't have time to, to read the entire thing, and I invite you to go do that yourself, um, Stephen, in, re, in response to these accusations, gives one of the longest sermons we have recorded in the entire Bible. It's like he's filibustering, right? You know, like he knows like what's about to happen and he's just like, he's just talking. Not, except that's not really what's going on. He's, he's speaking very intentionally and he takes these Jewish listeners through uh, like, like, like this, this, this message from, from the Old Testament talking about like their faith and, and, and who, you know, you know, who their, their forefathers were and what they learned along the way. And, and, and he brings them all up through the New Testament and who Jesus really was and explains to them in his closing remarks that Jesus really was the Messiah. And as he gets to the end of his sermon, like all good, all going, going well, all agreeable up until now. In verses 51 and 53, we see Stephen just throw the ultimate haymaker. Like it's, it's wild, like what he does here. In Acts 7, 51 through 53, this is what Stephen says at the end of his sermon to these people who are accusing him of all of these things. He says to them, you stiff-necked people. How would you like that? He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. Remember, he's telling them all about the Old Testament. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels have not obeyed it. So this is his closing, okay? 
So it's all like nice and amicable, and they're all like, okay, I get it. Like that's, and then at the end, he's like, hey, but, but here's, here's the reality. Here's, here's what's really going on inside of you. He says, he says you have always resisted the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and you've betrayed and murdered the righteous one, the Messiah, Jesus. Like you're the ones who did it. And so in verse 54, this is what we start to see. Like, like we see Stephen go down as the first martyr in the history of the church. It says in verse 54, when they heard this, these words, right, these accusations from Stephen, it says they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, love it, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Pretty important person in the New Testament. This is Saul of Tarshish, who would eventually have his Damascus Road experience in Acts chapter 9, uh, be converted radically, uh, and be, become known as the Apostle Paul. So we see right here is that Paul, the man who would become Paul, is Saul in the story, and he is standing there approving of what is being done to Stephen. It says in verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Words very similar to the words we see from Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He died. Stephen goes down as the first martyr in the history of the church, the first to die for their faith in Jesus. And, uh, and this is a, a pretty significant shift from all of the momentum that we've seen in the first five chapters of Acts. All, all the incredible things going on in the early day, days of the church. This is an incredible moment. This is like a galvanizing moment. This is like a put up or shut up moment. And and so we see in this story some pretty remarkable things. We see Stephen willing to give up his life for Jesus. And I guess, I guess for me, one of the things that has always stood out in this story uh, that, that, that has just amazed me in some pretty incredible ways is what we see in, verse, in verses 55 and 56 where, where it says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Listen, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That, that's, those, are key, those are key words. Those are key key things here, that Jesus is standing to his feet as Stephen is willing to give up his life for him. Do you know that this is the only place in the entire New Testament where we see any language at all of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father? Everywhere else, there's plenty of examples, plenty of verses where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, but everywhere else he's seated. Everywhere else he's seated. Look, here's an example in Hebrews 1.3. It says the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, listen to this, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This is just one of many examples that you can find in the New Testament where Jesus is, is described as being seated next to the Father in heaven. This is the only place we have 
where we see language that Jesus is not seated, but in fact he is standing. It's as if, it's as if, Stephen, it's as, as if Stephen is being cheered on. Like Jesus has gotten to his feet. Like he's peering down from his vantage point in heaven and he is going like, you can do it, Stephen. Like, like he, he has been brought to his feet. He's getting a standing ovation from Jesus himself. Smith Wigglesworth, um, a famous revivalist, uh, says this. He says, though usually seated at the right hand of God, this time Jesus gets to his feet to honor and spur Stephen on in his courageous act of worship. It's a pretty remarkable story. And I, I think about this because it's like Jesus is, seems to be standing to his feet as the same type of sacrifice that he made for the world is now being made for him. You know? It's like this is what he did. Jesus went through this. Like Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was killed. Jesus laid down his life for those that he loved. And, and what is like so remarkable and what gets Jesus to his feet is he is seeing someone willing to, get, to lay down their life for someone, for the one they love. For Jesus himself. And I, and I just ha- have this, this question for us to, to ponder if you're taking notes today. Have I ever lived my life in such a way that Jesus would be compelled to stand? Have I ever lived my life? Have I ever even tried? Have I ever even thought about this? That like Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Have I ever just thought of like, like man, like, like am I living my life in a way? Like has, is, is he looking down at my life and, 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 and just moved in such a way that he would stand and he would applaud and if I have I ever come close to potentially getting a standing ovation from Jesus and I don't mean that in any way to kind of kind of throw guilt on any of us that's not what this is about it's it's meant to serve as like a vision for our life that you and I like man we would let the things that don't really matter sort of just fade and go away and like like just be laser focused on the kingdom of God and living it out in such a way that like we, we would have him as like our audience that he would see your and sacrifice in mind, he'd see our commitment to him, and it would just move him in such a way that like, even if he wanted to stay seated, he couldn't anymore. And I think that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 7 as Stephen is, is killed for his faith in Jesus. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, this is, this is where, uh, as far as I want to go in Acts today, it just says, and Saul was there. Again, this, the man who eventually becomes the apostle Paul just in, in uh, the next chapter over, in Acts 9, it says, And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, the same day that Stephen is killed, it says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, okay? the surrounding areas. So they're no longer in Jerusalem, um, except for the apostles. It says in verse 2 that godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began destroying the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So what we see here in chapter 8 is that that the persecution of Stephen, Stephen's death, really serves almost as like permission for all of the the angry Jews. It's It's like all the permission they needed to now unleash all of their anger and hatred against the church. And it just, it just happens that day. It's like, oh, Oh, I didn't realize we could do that. Like, and they're all just, just, it's like everyone is just unleashed now to release their anger against the church. And so great persecution broke out. Unthinkable persecution broke out. And yet, and yet in an attempt to really squelch it and to, and to destroy it, it just began to spread like an incredible wildfire. Again, remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. 
that Jesus will have a church in the world. His church will be attacked. Hell will try to overcome it, but that none of these attacks will be able to destroy it. It will endure. It will endure. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these words that have always just perplexed me. Like, I, I don't understand how, like, you could say something like this. And, and Jesus says in verses, verse 10 through 12, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Like, how could you say something like this? Blessed are, the, are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like, hey, if you're facing hardship because of Jesus, like, just understand that you're blessed. Is that, is that how we understand blessing in, in, our, in our, you know, Western context, 2022? That's not how I understand blessing, Right? I understand blessing as like my answers to prayer, like, like more money than I know what to do with. I, I mean, I, like I, that's how I understand blessing, right? Jesus says, blessed are you when you face persecution because of him. What Jesus is really getting at here is there's gonna be a cause for this. You're gonna face, if you're gonna follow me, you're gonna face some stuff that you're not gonna wanna face. But the reason for that is really twofold that we see in, this, in, in these scriptures Number one, you're going to be persecuted because of righteousness. So righteousness, just to be clear, righteousness is the moral, that moral ethical standard in following Jesus that paints a contrasting reality between God's standards and the world's standards. That's, that's what Jesus says you're going to be persecuted for, having a moral ethical standard that is in sharp contrast to the moral ethical standard of the world. And he says, when you start to live into that, when you start to say no to what is you know, socially and culturally acceptable, and you say, no, 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 that's not my standard. This is my standard over here. I'm going I'm to follow the moral ethical standard of heaven. He says, you're going to face persecution for that. When you say, hey, some of these things are wrong. Some of these things aren't okay. Like, no, I'm not just going to go along with that. And when you, when you say that, when you verbalize that, Jesus is making it clear, you will face persecution for that. You'll face resistance. And there's really, there are really two things that I think of in terms of, in terms of, 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 of uh, you know, the moral ethical standard of God that, that I, think, I think are just so obvious that believers today in the 21st century are, are, gonna, are, are currently facing persecution for that. One of them is, is like the, just the Christian sexual ethic. You know, honestly, like I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because I, I, I don't have a ton of time, but, but I don't know of, of, of like a, a, um, a thing out there today that Christians are more persecuted for than holding true to the tra- tra- traditional Christian sexual ethic. The, 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 you know, and, and you know, we, we, you almost feel like you have to apologize for it. You almost have to feel like, you almost feel like you have to apologize for something that has been orthodox in the church for 2,000 years. The, 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 we have to believe that like somehow somebody all of a sudden became enlightened like, like all these years later and knows something more than what all of these people who have kept the church going for 2,000 years have known. And, and so all I'm saying is that facing persecution, it's a real thing. And one of the things that, that, that we will find ourselves persecuted for the most is, is by, holding, by holding to the traditional Christian sexual ethic. And maybe you've already felt that. Maybe you have felt that even in like, you know, work environments and like HR policies. And you have felt that in, in certain, certain places where you're just like not sure how to really work this out. 
That's a, a, a ongoing reality. The other thing I think that is, that is uh, uh, um, an example of how Christians seem to be facing uh, of challenges and persecution for their faith in Jesus is, is by adhering to the exclusive claims that Jesus makes about himself. That he, like, like John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. Like, like the, so, so the Christian sexual ethic and then the exclusive claims of Jesus are things that do not play well in, in our culture and in our world today. They just don't. Like, they, they, and people struggle with that. What do you mean, what do you mean Jesus is the only way? Like, what do you, what, what, what do you mean? Like, like I, it's okay if you want to serve God and you want to go to church and you want to pray and you want to even follow Jesus and you want to even believe in his teachings, but, but if you're going to start to tell me that I have to believe like you believe or that I have to follow Jesus in order to get to heaven, like, like, like who, are, who do you actually think you are, right? And you start to feel the, the, uh, the contempt uh, for those who, who are going to say, uh, these things. And so Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be persecuted because of two things, because of righteousness. Again, adhering to a different moral ethical standard. And two, he says, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna endure persecution because of me, just simply because of me. So, so aside from just like your, your, your ethics and your standards and all of that, he says, you're going you're gonna to face challenges in your life just simply because you align yourself with me. He says, like, the, the world hates me. Like, the world has hated me from the beginning, like, and they're going to hate you. They put him to death. Hey, they're going to do that maybe to you too. And, 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 and so he says, like, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be persecuted because of these things. And so as a follower of Jesus, I, I want you to know that you are going to experience persecution, and the cause of it will be two main things. A righteousness that offends the world and a loyalty to Jesus that is willing to cost you everything. That's what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount. That persecution is really an expectation that we ought to have when it comes to following Jesus. And if that's not an expectation, I want to just caution you to reconsider whether or not you're willing to follow Jesus because there will come a moment in your life where you have to go, man, am I really willing to do this? When things get hard enough, and I'm not saying like you're going to be at the, you know, at, at gunpoint and all that stuff, but, but there are going to be real challenges, real difficulty, real hardships, things that, that have not gone the way that you anticipated them to go. And, and you got to ask yourself, like, like, am I really in this for him or am I in this for me? Am I really in this for him or am I in this for me? You know, when you read through the New Testament, and if you do any kind of like background into the history of the church, you find that, man, massive, horrific persecution took place for, uh, I mean, hundreds of years, really the first 300 years of the church before uh, Constantine thought it would be like his, to his political advantage to make Christianity the, the state religion of Rome uh, because so many Christians were coming to faith. So um, until, uh, you know, about 300 uh, uh, A.D., uh, Christianity was outlawed. People were persecuted left and right. And, and one of the, the significant emperors that, that produced some of the most intense persecution against the church was uh, a man that many of you probably are familiar with, a guy named Nero. Remember Nero from your history books? And he hated Christians. Hated Christians. Hated them so much that he would order Christians to be dipped in hot wax and lit on fire essentially as like tiki torches for his gardens, for parties that he would throw to like illuminate the part, you know, uh, bring lighting uh, at night for his gatherings. Like, that's, that's what Nero would do. First Peter 4.12, Peter's really speaking to this exact thing right here, where he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. That's what he says. He's speaking exactly to what Nero would do to them, dipping them in hot wax and burning them 
as like candles, like, lit, like human candles. He's saying, don't, don't, he's saying, like, don't be surprised when these fiery trials come upon you as if something strange is happening to you. And it's just this, it's just this, this message, it's just this example that like, I, I think so often we face struggle, we face challenge or even just a little bit of opposition and we react as if something strange is happening to us. No, 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 that's not strange. That's actually quite normal. That's, that's in many ways the way the world is meant to react to the truth of Jesus in us. And some will accept it and many won't. But following him was never meant to be this like easy thing. It was never meant to be this thing that like just, just peaches and cream and no challenge at all. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. And so I want you just to know that the persecution of the church, it has gone on throughout all of history for the last 2,000 years. And some of you, you know, may be unaware that it is still happening today. Remember in 2015, the enormous story of the 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians who were beheaded by ISIS in Libya. Do you remember that story? All for their faith in Jesus. There's a famous book you can read called Fox's Book of Martyrs written in the, in the 1500s, late 1500s, early 1600s, by George Fox, who recorded the many different stories of those who had given their life for Jesus. Between the years of 2000 and 2010, so recent history, over a million people died for their faith in Jesus around the world. Today, there are 260 million people still experiencing horrific suffering in the context where they choose to follow Jesus. 260 million people today, right now. I read a story this week in, in prepping for this uh, message where uh, about a woman who leads a Bible study in Iran, like today. Leads a Bible study in Iran. And she said in this story that every day she leaves her house knowing that there's a high chance she could be imprisoned that day. That horrible things could happen to her and her family and yet, and yet she continues to take that risk every single day to be a disciple of Jesus in our modern world. It's stories like this that just blow my mind, just make, in, in some ways, little sense to me. And it brings me to this question that I want to I kind of leave you with, and it's this. Is what would have to happen to someone for them to willingly jeopardize their life? What is it that would have to happen to somebody and in no way am I like wishing for this upon us and upon our church and upon the U.S. and any of that. But I just wonder, like, is what's happened to them, has what's happened to them happened to me? Like, I'm not saying I'm not a follower of Jesus. But, but man, something would have to seriously happen to them. Undeniable, life-changing. Like, for them to be willing daily to jeopardize their life for Jesus. And I just wonder, like, has that happened to you? Has that happened to me like in, in such a way that like, like, I mean, whatever it takes, God, whatever, whatever you want to do with me, however you want to spend my life, whatever you want it to look like. And so I just tell you that because maybe it can bring into context some of our present struggles and some of our present challenges. And in no way am I trying to just minimize them or make them insignificant, but I'm trying to say that following Jesus requires some perseverance, right? James tells us in, in James 1, he says, consider it 
pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and that perseverance must finish its work so that you, become, so that you can become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Not lacking anything. Mature and complete. Perseverance produces great maturity in us as followers of Jesus. That in the struggle, in the challenge, in the things not going our way, in the bills I can't pay, in the relationships that I'm struggling with, in the things that I just, I, I, I did not plan it this way, persevering through them as a faithful follower of Jesus, James says, produces in us a level of maturity in us that we wouldn't have had otherwise. And so I just tell you today in great encouragement, stay the course. Stay the course. Hand of the plow, right? Stay the course. Persevere. Be faithful to Jesus. Be faithful to the cause of Jesus. And be willing to let God use our lives any way he wants. Amen? Would you just stand with me here today? I want you to bow your heads for a moment. And I just want to ask, ask you a question, you know. Um, you're here today and you would just say, you know what, Pastor Jordan, like I, I, I don't know for sure if I'm actually rooted in my faith in such a way uh, that, I, 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 that I would be able to remain faithful to Jesus when things get harder. Maybe you just know that you're in something hard right now and you know you feel your faith even, even wavering. You feel it being rocked a bit. You know what it's like and, and, and you know what it's like to live like the roller coaster ride of the highs and the lows of following Jesus and you're just so desperate for some stability. You're so desperate to just like, you know, get your life in such a way before the Lord where, where it's not up and down anymore, where it's just built on this core conviction that you're going to follow him no matter what. And that's, that's really you today, facing some stuff, knowing what it's like to face some difficult stuff. And you just are like, man, I'm tired of the roller coaster ride. I, I want to I just be faithful to Jesus no matter what it looks like. Could I, just, could I just see your hands today, today? You're talking about you know, challenges in our life, things that we're facing. You feel your face kind of go up and down based on what you're going. Can I just see your hands today? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, God, I just ask for just fresh resolve in this room right now. God, I'm just so spurred on by the many stories throughout history of people remaining, remaining so faithful to you in some of like the most horrific ways and horrific examples and, and Lord, all we really want in here today is for you to just encounter us in fresh new ways, to just let those under the sound of my voice experiencing, experience your love in new, fresh ways today, God, in, in, in such a way that it would, it would put a, a new resolve in us to not look to the right or to the left, to not be distracted by the things of this world and the things that lead us astray, but to remain faithful to you, to follow you with all that we are and all that we have. And so God, put a new fight in our spirit today. Put, put a new resolve in our spirit today, oh God. Come and do in us whatever it is that you wanna do. And so when it comes to this question of what now for us, what now in, in, in light of all that Jesus has done and all that we have seen, Lord, may we be people who just say, whatever it is, God, we'll, we'll do it. What now, God, you write the story. You, you do whatever you want with our lives. And, and so we come to you today just surrendered, just lives laid down before you and tell you today, God, that your kingdom and its purposes are the priority. They're the primary focus of our lives. And so we thank you, God, that you promise us, that Jesus, you promise us in Matthew 6, that if we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, things that we'll be persecuted for, 
that all these other things that we worry about, about will be added on to us. And so Jesus, we love you today. We love you today. You are worth it. And we just, we, just, we just say to you that the love that you poured out for us, we want to pour out for you. And so, uh, yeah, t- take us today, God, and do in us whatever it is that you want. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.